righty, well, welcome back. We're going to start a brand new series today called Parables, and uh, subtitled, The Stories Jesus Told About Us. Um, when I'm helping coach pastors on preaching, one of the things that I often say to them is that nothing becomes powerful until it becomes personal. And it's the same way in, in terms of reading the Scriptures. Uh, you could read the Scriptures, and it's a lot of great information, and you can read inspiring verses, and you think, wow, that's really good, until you understand this. The Bible was written for you and I to take personally. And when we read the Word of God personally, that's when it becomes powerful. Amen. And so in this series, that's, that's what I want us to do. We're going to look at uh, some incredible stories that Jesus told. I, I love the fact that Jesus was a master storyteller. And uh, he, whenever he was trying to convey truth, he would put it, frame it in a story that almost anyone could understand. And uh, through this series, we're going to look at several different stories. And the cool thing about this stories, they're all about us. Are you ready? Today, I want, to, I want to look at a passage of Scripture found in Matthew chapter 13. I'm going to read uh, a good excerpt from that. Uh, we're going to look at 1 through 23. I'm going to cut out a little bit of that. Um, I'm going to be reading it from the New Living Translation. You have NIV Bibles in front of you. If you'd like to follow along there, you can read it from that. Uh, we'll, uh, we're not going to throw it up on the screen. I'm just going to read it to you. Uh, but we'll get it there. By the way, those Bibles in the pews are our gift to you. If you would need a Bible, would like a Bible, feel free to take one of those home or take one to somebody you want to give one to. Look at what Jesus said, Matthew chapter 13, beginning at verse 1. Later that same day, Jesus left the house and sat beside the lake. A large crowd soon gathered around him, so he got into a boat. There he sat and he taught the people who stood on shore. He told many stories in the form of parables such as this one. Listen, a farmer went out to plant some seeds. As he scattered them across his field, some seeds fell on a footpath, and the birds came and ate them. Other seeds fell on shallow soil with underlying rock, and the seeds sprouted quickly because the soil was shallow. But the plants soon wilted under the hot thorns that grew up, and choked out the tender plants. Still other seeds fell on fertile soil, and they produced a crop that was 30, 60, even a hundred times as much as had been planted. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. Dropping down on that to verse 18, here Jesus explains it. He says, now listen to the explanation of the parable about the farmer planting seeds. The seed that fell on the footpath represents those who <clears throat> hear about the kingdom of God and don't understand it. The evil one comes and he snatches away the seed that was planted in their hearts. The seed in the, on the rocky soil represents those who hear the message and immediately receive it with joy. But since they don't have deep roots, they don't last very long. They soon fall away as soon as they have problems or are persecuted for believing God's word. The seed that fell among the thorns represents those who hear God's word, but all too quickly the message is crowded out by the worries of this life or the lure of wealth, and so no fruit is produced. The seed that fell on good soil 
represents those who truly hear and understand God's word and produce a harvest of 30, 60, even 100 times as much as had been planted. Everybody repeat out loud after me. I am the garden of God. Do it again. I am the garden of God. The only question this morning is what kind of garden are you? I want to I want to take a look at again go back to this this parable and I want to point out uh, that this thing is so rich with truth that we could actually do a whole series or more on it. But I want to I want to just go back to down and I want to point out about three or four truths from this parable that you can help you really understand what God is up to and what's going on in your life and the opportunity that God presents us as his followers. Are you ready? If you want to take your sermon outline, you can track along with me. Here we go. Here's the first thought I want you to get. God is constantly trying to cultivate something in your life. God is constantly trying to cultivate something in your life. Uh, some time ago in a message, I talked about the fact that God is always working. God doesn't sleep. God doesn't take breaks. He is always up to something. Now, it's one thing to think that the fact that God is out there, you know, kind of doing things, but here's what I want you to get. One of the things that this parable teaches us is that God is constantly up to stuff in our lives. The question is, what is it that God is trying to say and do in you and through you? Because God is constantly trying to cultivate this garden of our life and make it as fruitful and productive as it can be. The question is, are we open to what God's doing? You know, there's a, a real insightful verse of Scripture found in 1 Samuel chapter 3 and verse 1. Uh, if you remember the story, this was when uh, Samuel, who grew up to be a prophet, was just a little boy, and he was living at the temple, and uh, it, God was about to speak something powerful into his life. But look, I want you to look at the description of the times in which they lived. Throw that up on the screen. Here we go. Read this out loud with me. It says, now in those days, messages from the Lord were very rare and visions were quite uncommon. Now, here's the question. Was the voice of the Lord rare because God had just suddenly stopped speaking? Or was the voice of the Lord rare because nobody was listening? You see the difference? And when we kind of wonder what God's up to, the question becomes, are, are we open to the voice and the work of God? Are we looking for the voice of God? Are we seeking that? You remember what he says in Jeremiah 29, 13? You will seek me and find me. When? When you search for me with all of your heart. In other words, it's hard for God to really cultivate something in our lives when we're not listening or open to the things that he's saying. Um, I love what he says in Philippians 2. Paul, Paul says this way. Read it with me. He says, yes, 
It is God who is working in you. He helps you want to do what pleases him, and he gives you the power to do it. Paul says, don't you get this? God is constantly nudging you. His Holy Spirit constantly prompting you. Even when you don't really aren't interested in the things of God, it's his spirit that draws you to him. It's his spirit that gives you the want to. And if you lean into that, and you become obedient to that want to, God empowers you to be able to do what it is that he's asking you to do. Are you aware of the work of God in your life? <clears throat> Hear my heart with this. I think all too often in our lives, what we do is we, we chart our own course, and we ask God to get on board with what we've charted. You know, Lord, here's my agenda. Isn't that, how we, isn't that how we pray? We sit down before God with our agenda and say, now here's what I need you to do today, God, as if God is our errand boy for the day. I need you to take care of this and take care of that. And that, yeah, that person there, I need you to take care of them too while you're at it. And, you know, and we, we rather, than, rather than lean into God and say, Lord, what are you up to today? What is it that you're doing out there? What is it that you want to do in here? What do you want to say to me? And God, what do you want to do through me? I'm telling you, power really begins in our lives when we stop trying to get God on board with our agenda and we start getting on board with his. Does that make sense? He's constantly trying to work some things in our life. The great Henry Blackaby, this great old guy that passed away a while back, who uh, pastored in Canada for a number of years, told a great story of when he and the leaders of his church felt like God was prompting their hearts to start a, a college ministry. And he said, we had never done a college campus ministry before. And he said, I didn't know how to do it. I didn't have any leaders that knew how to do it. And he said, we contacted our denomination and uh, he said, they came back and said, well, maybe you ought to try to start a Bible study at, at, at one of the dorms. And so Henry Blackaby said, so we just he said, we're just going to set out and do this. So we just tried to start a Bible study. He said, we spent three weeks trying to get a Bible study going in the dorms and he's nothing, couldn't track anybody. Nothing was happening. And Blackaby said, then all of a sudden it hit me. Maybe, maybe we're going about this wrong. Maybe we ought to ask God what God's up to on the campus and try to get on board with that. So Henry Blackaby said he called all the college students in their church together. They had a meeting together and he said, you know, we really believe God wants to do something on the campus, but we're not sure where and we're not sure how. So here's what we want you to do. We just want you to spend this week being sensitive, being in prayer every day about, God, where are you moving around us? Where is it that you would like to draw us to? What is it that you're trying to raise up that we might get on board with? We want your will to be done, not ours. That Wednesday, three days later, he said, they got, they got together on that Wednesday night, and uh, he said one of the girls uh, from the college that attended his church said, Pastor Blackaby, you're not going to believe this. She goes, we've been praying every day. He said, she said, today, uh, she goes, after one of my classes, 
he said, I, I have one of my, my fellow students came up to me and said, you're one of those Christians, aren't you? <laughs> and the girl said, yeah, I am. And she said, well, there's been a group of us girls who have been reading the Bible together, but we don't really understand it, and we need someone who can explain it to us. Um, can I talk to you a little bit about that? And the girl said, all of a sudden, I realized I've got a class next hour. And she said, but this is what God is up to. She said, so I skipped my class, and this girl and I sat in the cafeteria together, and, and she began to share with me what these girls wanted to do, and we're going to start now. I'm going to be meeting with them, and we're going to launch a Bible study together there. And he said, isn't it amazing? In the next, during the course of the next month, he said, we ended up having four or five different Bible studies happening on campus, all because we stopped trying to force God into our round hole and said, God, you show us what you're up to and we'll get on board <clears throat> the power of God in our lives begins the day we surrender to the will of God in our lives amen look at me just hear my heart I don't know what God is up to in you through you but this is what I do know God is never he never stops trying to cultivate something in our lives. We need to be open to that. Amen? Amen. Let me give you a, a second thought that you get out of this parable. <laughs> and you get this. While God is working, guess what? <clears throat> the enemy is working too. <clears throat> While God is working, the enemy is working too. You know what he says in the, in the parable? talks about how the farmer, who is God, is casting that seed, cultivating that work, trying to, do, trying to do that work in our lives. He said, you know what? Sometimes it falls on a barren path, and guess what? The enemy wastes no time, and he comes and snatches the, that seed away. Now, how many of you have walked this journey long enough to know that the moment God starts trying to do something in your life, the enemy jumps in too? Have you seen that yet? Yeah. Why? Because he doesn't, he doesn't want that work to happen. He doesn't want God to get his way. And so he's going to do everything in his power to take it away from you. Look at what Jesus says. John chapter 10, verse 10. Read it with me. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I love in John 8, Jesus was describing in great detail how the enemy works and who he is. Verse 44, he says, read it with me. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, what does that look like? Well, that looks like God nudging you, and you feel that nudge to, to maybe make a phone call or send a note to someone that God lays on your heart, and you begin to think, oh, that's just my imagination. Where, does, where do you think that lie comes from? Or maybe you feel that nudge for, you know, you're feeling like God's wanting you to, to teach a class or start a group or begin a new ministry. And you, you know, all of a sudden you start hearing this voice that you can't do that. You don't have time for that. You, you're not able to do that. You're not qualified to do that. Where, where do you think that voice 
comes from. Or maybe you're feeling that, that conviction of God. Maybe God is convicting you of some things, and he's saying, you know, this, this, this is going to hurt you. If you go down this path, it's not going to be good. And, and all the voice says, oh, you know, don't worry about it. It's going to be okay. Where do you think that voice comes from? The enemy will lie, 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 lie. And he will try to steal immediately what God is trying to do. Because the quicker he can snatch it away from you, the more you'll just go on with the rest of your life. Throw that picture up on the screen for me. That old Civil War general, name is Nathan Bedford Forrest. September 1864, he was leading some troops from Decatur, Alabama, trying to make his way up to Nashville. And basically, the big idea was that they were trying to take, the Confederacy was trying to take control of that railroad line that was sending all of the supplies to the Union troops. And as he got to, uh, uh, up, up toward Athens, Alabama, there was a fort there. And they, when, the, when the Union soldiers saw the Confederacy coming, they got into the fort. And the, the Confederate army started shelling the fort, trying to let them know we've got some capability here, but they really couldn't break through. So this general, this general uh, Forrest came up with this idea that was just, I thought, really wild. There's the, the colonel, the Union colonel that was there to Fort was a guy by the name of Wallace Campbell. And he wasn't a totally competent leader at that. But he sent, uh, General Forrest sent a, 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 a messenger to the fort and said he wanted a, a, a parlay with the colonel so that they wouldn't have to experience great losses. And so the general meets with this Colonel Wallace, and he takes him and he says, I want to I show you what you're up against. And so he takes him to where he has a whole battalion of, of soldiers with all the artillery and stuff that they've got. And he shows that to him, and he said, we've got several of these. And so then he begins to take the general to a different place. And while he's moving the general to this other place, this whole group removes to a new place. And the general takes him to this new location where the group he had just looked at were already there. And then he takes him to yet another place and another place. And all he did was move his battalion every time, convincing this colonel that he had this huge army that was going to overrun the fort. And he said, you're going to suffer all kinds of losses. And you're going to, if, if you'll just surrender, I promise no harm will come to your men. And so rather than stay and fight, he believed the lie and unconditionally surrendered the fort to this Confederate general. Look at me. That's the power of the lie. Hear my heart. I truly believe that much of what God has not been able to cultivate and grow in our lives hasn't, isn't due to the fact that it can't happen. It's that we believe the lie of the enemy and turn away from allowing it. 
to happen. I believe with all of my heart that there are people through whom God wants to work in amazing ways. But it's not going to happen because they're believing the lie that they aren't capable enough, they're not qualified, they're not able, and they, they, they believe that lie of the enemy rather than believe God who says, I can do this through you. Know this, as you begin to feel the cultivating work of God in you, trust me, the enemy is going to do everything he can to take that work away. Amen. We'll give you a third thought. Once God plants it in your life, protect it. Once God plants it, protect it. Do you remember what he says in the parable? He says there are some people who God begins a good work in their life, but some of it's like the, the rocky soil and the, the plant begins to grow, but then all of a sudden once trouble or persecution comes, they, they quit. And he said then there's others who, you know, they, they start to grow, and, but they like the, like the soil that has a bunch of weeds that they get distracted by other things and they, 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 get, they get that choked out. Now, here's what I want you to know. As you begin that good work, as God begins that good work in you, that's something that we have a responsibility to protect. Listen to the word of the Lord, Proverbs 4.23. Read this out loud with me. Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. Look at what Paul says to Timothy. Read it with me. He says, guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Now, now what do I mean? Well, let me, give you, let me give you a few thoughts. Don't give in to discouragement. Don't give in to discouragement. I'm going to look you in the eye. I've said this before, and I'm going to say it again and again and again and again and again. Discouragement is the greatest tool of the devil. The greatest tool. Most of us, when we get started with God doing something in our life, whether it's changing us, we will we'll slip up or we'll fail, we'll, 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 we'll have a mess up in our life, and, and then we just quit. Rather than believe that God, who began this good work, can continue it, we just go, I'm just not capable of this. I can't be the person God wants me to be. Look at me. Yes, you can. Proverbs 7 says, Though a righteous man falls seven times, he shall rise every time. You, you can, but discouragement gets in the way. Or how many of us, how many of us have, have, have let God use us in some form of ministry? And, and then something happens. Somebody gets upset with us. Something goes wrong. Something goes south. And, and all of a sudden, it's like, you know what? I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm not going to do this anymore. Yeah, it's so interesting. Uh, it, uh, I think most of you are aware we're in a real time of crisis as far as spiritual leadership in, in the church. Um, there are fewer and fewer people going into full-time ministry to lead our churches. Um, there's a few factors involved in that, not the least of which is people just get tired of people complaining all the time. 
And I can't tell you how, how many pastors, if you did it, if you did it, when they, all the surveys they've done have shown that the greatest thing that pastors deal with is discouragement. Because you know sooner preach your heart out at a message, you walk out in the lobby and somebody's complaining about the temperature in the sanctuary. They're not hearing what the Word of God says. You know, and, and you, get, you get all of this. And yet, here, here's what I want you to know. Look at me. I love you guys. I don't care if you complain. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, when I stand before God, I answer to him, not you. Does this make sense to you? And, and I want you, you we've got to have this resiliency within us that says, I don't live for men. I don't live for, for people. I live to serve God because I promise you, if you step out and try to teach a class, lead a group, lead a ministry, I guarantee you discouragement is going to happen. It's going to be the way it's going to be. And you've got to be able to say, this is just a part of the journey. Does this make sense, gang? Yeah, and it, it, it's everywhere, and yet I've watched it time and time again. People get criticized for something or something happens, and they say, well, if that's how it's going to be, I just quit. Really? Really? Jesus, who had a crown of thorns stuck on his head, beaten with a whip, crucified on a cross, and yet you want to quit because just a couple of people complain? Let's be willing to do for him what he did for us. Amen. Amen. I saw this poem. I'm, I just thought it was really good. It says, I refuse to be discouraged. It says, I refuse to be discouraged, to be sad or to cry. I refuse to be downhearted. And here's the reason why. I have a God who's mighty, who's sovereign and supreme. I have a God who loves me and I am on his team. He is all wise and powerful. Jesus is his name. Through everything, though everything is changeable, my God remains the same. My God knows all that's happening, beginning to the end. His presence is my comfort, and he is my dearest friend. When sickness comes to weaken me, to bring my head down low, I call upon the mighty God, and in his arms I go. When circumstances threaten to rob me from my peace, he draws me close into his breast where all my striving cease. When my heart melts within me and weakness takes control, he gathers me in his arms and he soothes my heart and soul. The great I am is with me. My life is in his hands. The Son of God is my hope. It's in his strength I stand. I refuse to be defeated. My eyes are on my God. He has promised to be with me as through this life I trod. I'm looking past all my circumstances to heaven's throne above. My prayers have reached the heart of God, and I'm resting in his love. I give, thanks, I give God thanks in everything. My eyes are on his face. The battle's his. The victory's mine. He'll help me win the race. I made copies of that and put them out at the Welcome Center for any of you who would want those. I think maybe some of us need to put those up on our refrigerator. Don't give in to discouragement. Don't give in to distractions. Don't give in to distractions. As God begins that good work, there's going to be a thousand other things that's going to want to get in your way. And I'm just going to say, don't give in to them. All kinds of other things that want to pull you aside. Keep your eyes focused on what God is calling you to do. And thirdly, don't give in to doubt. Don't give in to doubt. 
Again, one of the things that the enemy wants to do is he wants to get, begin to get us to doubt ourselves, to doubt God, or to doubt what God's up to. We need to take hold of him. I, I love there's a, a story that Max Licato tells about a friend of his who had, uh, had cancer. And he ended up in the hospital, and this, this guy had some, some friends who basically told him, um, you're not being healed because you don't have enough faith. And this guy grew real discouraged. And when Max came to visit him, he was telling him, he's like, you know, I have these friends who are saying, of, you know, that it's my fault. I've got cancer. I, I, I just don't have enough faith. And Max comes over to his bed and he puts his hands on the guy's shoulder and he says, what if it's not about you? And the guy said, what do you mean? He said, what if God wants to work through your illness instead of simply magically removing it from you? Max says, do you know how many times I've come in this room, seen you witnessing to nurses? How many times I've come in this room and, and seeing you, in spite of all you're going through, being in good spirits and, and shedding, sharing joy and, 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 and peace? He goes, you know, he said, you... You, you are the song of God to the people in this hospital. Don't lose faith that God is working through you. That became the wind in that guy's sails. Don't give in to doubt. Let me give you one more. Honor God with growth. Honor God with growth. Jesus said, when God plants something in our lives, it has this incredible potential. It can grow to something 30 times what it was, or 60 times what it was, or 100 times what it was. Here's the deal. So what are you doing to help God take that which he has given to you and really help it to grow. When, um, when Wanda and I uh, moved to Phoenix uh, to pastor back in 96, uh, people in the church found out that my, uh, my son Nate liked grapefruit. And uh, there's a lot of people who have fruit trees in Phoenix. And so one of the Sunday school classes decided that for a housewarming gift, they were going to plant a grapefruit tree in, in our backyard. And so they did. They had it professionally planted. It was a nice little, little grapefruit tree. Um, we never had fruit trees before. You know, my, Wanda, neither Wanda or I have green thumbs. We got brown thumbs, whatever it is. Even if it's plastic, it dies at our house. You know what I'm saying? And, and we had this grapefruit tree. Well, we didn't, we didn't know. And, the, you know, the first year went by and, you know, there might have been one, two grapefruits on this tree. And I'm going, well, we're not going to be filling up any juice jugs with this, you know. And, uh, and second year went by, it's kind of the same thing. It had lots and lots of leaves, but it didn't really have much fruit. And so I finally decided I need to talk to somebody. So I talked to somebody in the church and said, man, this tree's not growing any kind of grapefruit at all. And they said, oh, it should be. It's ruby red grapefruit. That ought to be flourishing. And they said, are you pruning it? I said, what's that mean? <laughs> 
And so they describe, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta cut all this foliage back because all the juice is going to this foliage and you need to, you need to put some nutrients in the soil and you need to do, you know, you need to, you need to do something. And I said, well, nobody ever, nobody ever told me that. And we did. So we pruned it back. We put nutrients in the foliage. You know what happened the next year? This thing exploded with grapefruit. I mean, we had grapefruit everywhere. We were eating grapefruit, selling grapefruit, giving it away on the street. It, was just, it, just, it just began to flourish. Now, look at me. There is a work that God does in us, but God partners with us for the growth that really happens. Now, what does that look like? I put this on your outline. You need to feed God's work in you with his word. This is why when we talk about getting into the Word of God, why? Because this is going to be the most direct way that God's going to speak to you. And He can take that seed that He's planted and He can help that to really grow into a man or woman of God. But you've got to feed that with His Word. You need to water God's work with prayer. You, you, you got to lean into God, listen for his voice, share your heart with him. That, that's that watering of your spirit. Man, when we grow tired and, and dry, we need to lean into God's spirit and let it just wash over us. We need to radiate God's work with community. This is why you got to be around other Christians, other people who are, who are going to help shine on that work that God's doing in you to help that to begin to flourish. And finally, you need to multiply God's work by your sharing. And what does that mean? That means take what God's doing in you and put it to work. Put it to work. You know how you go strong? You move these muscles. Same thing in our journey with God. I love how Paul says this in Colossians 2.7. It's our memory verse for the week. Read it with me, church. Let your roots go down into him and let your lives be built on him. Then your faith will grow strong in the truth that you were taught and you will overflow with thankfulness. The seed God plants in you has unlimited potential. Take the lid off and let it grow. Jesus uses this analogy of a garden in John chapter 15. He says, I am the vine, and you, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But if you abide in me, and you allow me to abide in you, you can bear grapefruit. Grapefruit. Here's the question. Are you abiding in Him? You can't do this on your own. You can't do it without the power and the presence of God. The enemy's going to tell you to quit. He's going to try to distract you. He's going to try to discourage you. He's going to try to fill your head with doubts. He's going to try to steal away the work that God is doing. God is trying to cultivate something in your life. You are the garden of God. 
So what is God growing in you? 